Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and this is an episode on the value of hustle. Now, as you know, I try to introduce you to interesting people that you otherwise might never meet. Well, that is the case this week. My guest is Bob Bachman, also known as Cool Bobby B. Now, he lives a double life. He is a very highly successful broadcast executive and the host of a weekly doo-wop show on Sirius XM Radio. So this is an episode about creating success by perseverance, and it's an episode about reinventing yourself, and along the way, some cool stories and analysis of the state of TV and radio. But first, I want to play you a sample of Cool Bobby B. So all that this week on Hollywood and Levine. One more time, it's side by side, we're going for a ride. I'm Cool Bobby B. Thanks to you, the number one doo-wop show in the universe. Aren't you glad you got a serious XM radio? Our toll-free telephone line, one 866 doo Yeah, that's 1-866-D-O-O-W-O-P-P, and it's all toll-free. When the clock strikes nine, Hollywood and Levine. All right, so we're going to talk a little radio, a little TV, and get back to radio. <laughs> now, Bob, you started in the 60s as a, a disc jockey. At the time... Where did you see your career going? Well, to be honest with you, um, I I was hoping to I'd be I was hoping I'd be able to be a successful enough radio person to actually make a living at it. Uh-huh. Um, of course, I was only seventeen at that point, so I didn't know better. Uh, I, I never thought I would be getting into sales or management or TV or any of those other things. Um, I initially. Wanted to get into the music, the, the radio, the disc jockeying, wasn't because of radio. It was because of TV. In when what was, way? When I was growing up, I really didn't like the radio disc jockeys that I heard for the most part. My, the big pop station in Philly where I was growing up was WIBG. 
and they played everything on the top 40. And I didn't like everything on the top 40. And the only disc jockey that was on the air that I really admired and loved and would have loved to have met someday but never had the chance was a guy named Harvey Miller. I was, in love, I was in love with Harvey Miller. Oh, man, you know, he was a good friend of mine. Oh, that's really, that's, yeah. you're, very, you're very lucky. I am, as, I am. As an eight-year-old, he was my idol. I didn't care about anybody else, just Harvey Miller. But on television, in those days when I was growing up, there was a lot of airtime to fill on the affiliate stations because there wasn't programming all the time. So a lot of the local stations in Philadelphia had TV dance shows. And that's what I like to watch because I, I love to, to see the groups come on. The dancers were great. I, matter of fact, I later became a dancer on a TV show. But prior to that, I just loved watching the shows. My mom told me I had my face two to three inches away from the TV for seven or eight years. They couldn't get me away from the TV because I was watching these TV dance shows. I just loved it. So and you thought, wanted to be Dick Clark? Is that it? You... Well, I, I thought I'd like to be somebody like that. Um, I was even I was even watching Bandstand before there was any Dick Clark. Uh, there was a guy named Bob Horn. There was dance parties on radio even with, uh, Ed Hurst and Joe Grady, but all the TV stations had dance parties. And Ed Hurst had the show uh, two hours on Saturday, two hours on Sunday that came out live from the Steel Pier in Atlantic City. And I loved that show so much. I loved him. And later when I was in high school, I got to be a dancer on his show and I watched to see how it actually operated. So he was the idol. He was the guy that I wanted. I wanted to be Ed Hurst. You've never heard of him, but in Philadelphia, he was very, very popular. So uh, it, it's interesting you said when you started, you thought, well, I could just do this. I could be a radio personality. And I did the same thing when I started out as a disc jockey. It seemed like, okay, this is a great job. I'll just do this for like 40 years. Right. And, exactly. and like three years later, it kind of hit me like, man, do I do I want to be 50 years old still playing Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison? Uh, <laughs> You know, there was like this epiphany. What about for you? I mean, to put it in context, when I was 12 years old, I started a mobile disc jockey service with a friend of mine. We used to do bar mitzvah parties, sweet 16s, school dances and all that stuff. And eventually he dropped out, but I kept going all the way through high school. I was hired all the time as being a DJ. And I thought that to me, that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to get on stage, introduce the records. Okay. But I didn't really know what it meant to be a radio disc jockey. So I finally got a job in a radio station and I worked there at night. I went to college in the daytime and I found out what it was really, really like. Um, and I found out that I needed to keep moving if I wanted to make more money because the station that you were at didn't necessarily want to give you a, a raise. To get a raise, you had to go to another station. So I traveled around doing this for a little bit until I finally realized I looked out the window. I was at a radio station in Tulsa, and the station was up on the second floor of a building that looked like a satellite, a spaceship. It was round. And when you looked out one side of the building, you saw the cars that the disc jockeys drove. When you looked out the other side of the building, you saw the cars that the salesmen drove. And I went into the manager's office and I said, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? I, sure do. <laughs> right. I went into the manager's office and I said, I want to be a salesman. And the guy looked at me and he said, you're a long haired rock and roll disc jockey. You'll never be a salesman. If you want to raise or if you want me to help you with the buying a house or something, I'll help you. But just forget about it. So I got <laughs> in my car and I drove. A friend of mine had a station up in Wichita, a couple, three hours up the highway. I went in there. He hired me as a salesman. I went back and quit. And that's when the epiphany 
hit. I wanted that better car. I wanted a house. I wanted to support a wife and kids, all those good things. I just couldn't, I wasn't a good enough disc jockey where that would really matter. Yeah. My uh, father was a radio salesman. He was uh, at KABC and eventually he became the general manager of WLS in Chicago. But he would say the same thing to me when I was, you know, had dreams of, of being a disc jockey. And he's saying, no, no, <laughs> it's right. a nomadic life. You don't make any money. There's no future. And it's sales. Sales is, is what to do. And I just I never went in that direction. But you did get into sales and right. you moved up. Right. And looking at your very extensive resume, it it talks about how you increased sales by 300% or 600% at various places. To me, there is an art to salesmanship. There really is. I love going to state fairs or county fairs, and there's always that cavernous hall that all the hucksters set up. Right. Right. And, you know, and they're selling squeegees and miracle walks and stuff like that. And and I just love going around hearing all of these pitchmen. What makes a good salesman? You have to be able to listen. That's number one. You've got to listen. Listen to the client. Try to get out from him what is keeping him awake at night. Once you find out what is bothering him, your gold, because then you have a chance to be creative and go back, create us a couple of different solutions for him that might be able to solve that problem. Come back and present it, of course, with enthusiasm. You know, that's very with empathy, all those important kind of emotions. And they got to be real. I, I was real as could be, man. I used to work from 630 in the morning till 11 o'clock at night trying to find clients and go out and sell them something after I found out what their problem was. If you don't have that, you got nothing. Other than well, that, you're just you're just canvassing. Yeah, my father would talk about when he was a sales manager and he put together a staff of salesmen. And he used to say he wanted to hire really good salesmen. And he said, I could go in with my sales staff to a mattress store and have them explain the world of mattresses. And my guys would outsell their salesmen because my guys are just better salesmen. And, yes. uh, you know, he took great pride in that. And like I said, I, I've always found that there's there's a real art to to being a good salesman. Well, to be really frank about it, I mean, when I was just starting out in Wichita, I bought every tape, every cassette sales course. I went to Dale Carnegie course. I went to, I forget all their different names, Zig Ziglar and all these other people, and just listen to how they talked about it. Earl Nightingale records in my car, you know, whatever it took to find <laughs> out. I had to find out how to build that excitement inside me. So I would have the, I, don't, I guess you'd say the courage to go out and do it because that's a hundred percent of the whole job. Uh, you have to get out there. And if you can't get out there, Forget it. I've hired salesmen that didn't last very long that sat in the office waiting for the telephone to ring. They wanted to be next in the queue. Those guys never made it ever. Didn't matter what station it was. Yeah. You, well, you also have the type of personality. I mean, from the time you were 12, you were ambitious and you were a go-getter. And I also assume that for you, there was like more satisfaction in that as opposed to 
just playing the same records over and over. Uh, there was a there was there was satisfaction in both. I love being on the air and talking to the listeners and all that. You but get I, more I, girls if you're on the air yeah. than a salesman. So yeah, I'm, I, I'm I'm just saying, cars aside, you right. get way more girls. Right. Okay. <laughs> but you know that's only good for, up to a certain point. Um, but the, yeah, I got I got a lot of satisfaction. But the real key for me was that I'm a very shy person. I'm quiet. Okay, very quiet naturally. I'm not anymore, but that's really how I perceive myself. And to get out and be a salesman when you're very shy is a real challenge. And it really changed things for me altogether. Yeah, you're not naturally an extrovert. And you're in a profession where you really require that. Those cars must have been very important to you. (laughs) I wanted wanted one that didn't have to get fixed every other day. So you then uh, transitioned into television management. Yes. How different is that from radio? Well, the story of how I transitioned, I think, will explain it perfectly. I was out of work. By the way, as a radio station manager, it's very similar to like a baseball manager. You get fired in one place, and then three other people want to hire a different place. So I also moved around being a manager and stuff like that. But finally, I was really dead out of work for a while. And I saw an ad in broadcasting. Do you remember Broadcasting Magazine? I used do. Have, they used to have classified ads in the back. It was a little tiny boxes. And one of them said, TV station manager wanted. Send your resume to Jim Bocock, Pax TV. And I sent my resume to this guy. Okay. I didn't know what it was. I had no idea. I, didn't, I finally found out what Pax and TV was, but that was later. <laughs> and I called the guy. I had a little book and I wrote down the times I called the guy to follow up on my, my resume. I called him at nine o'clock, one o'clock and four o'clock every day for 30 days. I called him something like 90 times. And on the 91st time, His assistant finally picked up the phone. He never would talk to me any of the other times. And she goes, Bob, Jim wants to talk to you right away. This is after calling him 91 times. Right away. Yeah. Uh (laughs) So anyway, they flew me down to Florida to explain the job to me. And they said to me, you're a radio station manager. We don't want any television station managers to run our stations. We only want radio station managers because we think radio station managers work so much harder than TV station managers, you know, traditional affiliate TV station managers. And boy, they didn't know what they were talking about. It's hard. Any kind of TV management, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, you're, you got about 20 things going on at once with the news and the community and the network and the syndicate. It's very hard, but that was their idea was just radio station managers. Cause all they really cared about was selling the time. The rest of the stuff would be provided in. It wasn't a, wasn't a lot of local decision-making, you know, in that part of it. Um, so I got down there and they gave me a job and uh, they, well, I should tell you this story because you're, you're a radio guy. You appreciate this. In my interview, they asked me, where did I want to move to? They said, we're buying TV stations in San Francisco or Philadelphia. Which one do you want to go to? And I said to the guy who was interviewing me, this guy named Dean Goodman, I said, I want to go to Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia. He said, okay, you got to go in and see Bud Paxson. Bud Paxson was the guy that invented the home shopping network. And he owned this big bunch of radio stations and he was getting ready to buy these TV stations. So they send me into this room and 
Ken, every wall, every space in that giant conference room was covered with radio memorabilia, microphones and logos and pictures of Edward R. Murrow smoking a cigarette and everything you could possibly think of. And a giant conference table where there was laid out what looked to me like a hundred telephone books. I found out later they were prospectuses for buying t- TV stations. And Bud Paxson was sitting there, no shirt, no shoes, no socks, just a <laughs> pair of leave pair of Levi khakis. And he goes to me, you're Bobby. He goes, he goes, right. He goes, well, where do you want to go? He said, we're buying all these stations. What, where do you want to go? I said, well, I want to go to Philadelphia. I'm, I'm from Philadelphia. He goes, you don't tell me where I want it. You want to go. We tell you where you're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> where did he send you? Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> He wound up sending me to New London, Connecticut. But finally, the guy in Philly didn't work out, so they sent me down there after about six months. Okay, but San Francisco is a nice place. I know. I, 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 know it's I might have gone to San Francisco. I know. So let's talk for a moment about, because I know we're sort of bouncing from topic to topic, but the idea of local television stations, local independent television stations, you know, for a while, they were a gold mine because you could be a network affiliate and you get all of CBS shows and you get the NFL and everything else. And then you just had to fill the time with syndicated shows. Well, now it seems since the networks all have their various other streaming platforms. And since there's no exclusivity on syndicated shows, because you can see Cheers on your channel eight and you can see it on YouTube and you can see it on Paramount Plus and you can buy the DVDs. It seems like, boy, it's really tough now if you're a local TV station to to sort of make it in this new streaming world. Am I correct in that assumption? It's harder. I sold, well, I, I started a low power station from scratch and I, it finally became the NBC affiliate in Salisbury, Maryland. That was my last gig. Okay. It was about a 10 year gig. And when I sold the station in 2019, the streaming stuff was just starting to really be a problem. Okay. We still had the local news we could sell. We had, you know, we had things like that, but what I did I know you're going to laugh at this, but what I did was I used radio. I was on 18 radio stations with my commercials and the commercials were basically, hi, I'm Bob Backman. I have a local television station. I can't even afford to buy my own jingles for my station. Let me sing one for you. I mean, that's (laughs) what my radio radio spots were like. So that gave me the entree wherever I went, even if the people never watched my station, when I went into any store, and I said, I'm Bob Backman. They heard me on the radio that day. They already knew who I was. That was an entree to getting in there. So what we had to do was we had to, again, it, it goes back to the old radio sales I was doing in the 1970s. We had to go in there and not be like the other TV stations and not say, okay, I got your spot in the Super Bowl. It's 15000 I got your spot in Wheel of Fortune. It's 4000 No. We had to go in there and do the same thing from scratch, create advertising campaigns, promotions, in-store, whatever we had to figure out to do to get these people. Because as you say, the audience is shrinking. 
but you still got to get results for the advertiser. And that's what we always, we always try to come up with something that he would know that the advertising worked. But I, I'm just so glad I got out right when I got out because in night in pandemic hit, streaming went crazy. And I don't, I think I really would have been struggling compared to, you know, getting out at a good time. Yeah. I was going to say, if you had the chance to start a low power TV station now, you probably would run. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I want to talk about your other life too, which is, to me, it's fascinating. The fact that here you are a very well-respected executive in the broadcasting field. And yet there is this other side of you, shy Bob Bachman, who (laughs) is cool Bobby B. Now, how did cool Bobby B come to be? Okay. After the, uh, one of the jobs I got fired in as a general manager, I got, my wife and I got into the event business and we created this idea of these big station events. And we were really successful with it because we had a special formula. I'm not going to go into it. It's boring to people probably now, but we had a formula for the stations to make a lot of money and the clients to make a lot of money. We sold this for five years. And during that time, I kept running into one guy who was one of the guys I had fired when I was a manager. He was a programmer guy. But at that point that I ran into him again, he was becoming sort of the captain of the oldies format for clear channel radio. There weren't a lot of, uh, uh, it was not like today. There's no oldie stations now unless you're on AM. But in those days, in the nineties, there was big FM oldie stations and he was in charge of, of all of them. And he said to me, he said, Bob, do you still have your old records from when you were, you know, playing the oldies back in the, he knew I was like a doing parties back 30 years ago. He said, do you still have the, your old records? And I go, yeah. He goes, we want to start a doo-wop show. We want to put it on Saturday night at midnight. You have to come into the station. And the station was WGRR in Cincinnati. You have to come into the station at midnight and work live till three o'clock in the morning. You got to bring your records in. <laughs> but we want to do this because CBS FM in New York has had a tremendous success with the Don K. Reed's doo-wop shop. And it was on a Sunday night from seven to midnight. They didn't want to risk that good time. So they wanted to try it out <laughs> midnight at Saturday night. So I said, yeah, I want to do it. I want to do it. I mean, I, I, I would, something I would love to do. I haven't disc jockeyed in a thousand million years, but yeah, I got my records. You know, I'll bring them in. <laughs> <laughs> and I you had doing... all these old doo-wop records. Oh, yeah, I had from, the records. Yeah, in the 50s <laughs> when you were hosting dance right. parties right. when you were 12 okay yeah and so I, I he 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 i think he got fired or left or whatever and he went to be head of the captain of the oldies format for clear channel and i started doing the show for him at grr but then he left and then he called me one day he was doing a syndicated show for clear channel out of the stratosphere hotel in las vegas every night they had satellite time from like Sunday night from six to midnight or something like that. And they, they ran their show seven nights a week, but in order to get the good price on, on satellite, rather they ran their show six nights a week. They had to buy the seventh night night because they were getting a, a bulk deal from the satellite company or whatever, who was ever distributing that program. He said to me, I got a slot open on this satellite time. We're just going to take your show and put it on satellite and any clear channel station can pick it up. And they started picking it up. And that's when the show started to spread. That was around 1996 or something like that. Okay. 
So now you're on a bunch of stations. Now I'm on a lot of stations now. And so I'm doing everything I can to make money. I'm selling T-shirts. I'm selling CDs. I'm doing it. They let me do whatever I want because it was my <laughs> my show. It was a barter. You know what I mean? They just wanted to use up the satellite time. Oh, I see. So in other words, by barter, you mean you sold the time yourself. They weren't paying you. No. They were just giving you the airtime. Right. And whatever commercials you could get, right. you pocketed the money. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, that, and, and you probably from- did a whole lot better at that than you did getting paid from midnight to three in Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. I mean, it got really good. Like, uh, I don't know if you, you know Ed Mann from out in Los Angeles. He uh, he since started syndicating my show. And then United Stations, Dick Clark, started selling the time in it. And it's got to be really, really, really good. And then... All the stations started dropping the oldies format all at once. They wanted to go to the 80s and 90s, and my show was getting canceled like you wouldn't believe. I was dropping from a 50,000-watt FM to a 500-watt AM in the same market just to stay on. But my CD sales and my T-shirt sales were bound to suffer, and the United Stations had no numbers to sell. So the show was about ready to crash and burn. Okay. I was still having fun. Okay. And what rescued you? XM Radio. Uh-huh. Did they approach you or did you approach them? I approached them. I, I heard that I, I was reading about XM Radio. I didn't really understand it. But I saw that the um, head of everything, the genius behind it was Lee Abrams. And I knew him back in the day because I had Bob Elliott was one of my consultants, Burkhard Abrams and all these different people. So I just t- took a tape of my syndicated show and I sent it to Lee Abrams. And I didn't even know if he'd remember me. Okay. So mm-hmm. he, anyway, a couple of days later, this guy named Cleveland Wheeler calls me up and he goes, we're putting together a fifties channel, a sixties channel. I forget all the, they had like 300 million channels. And he goes, we're going to hire a program director for the fifties channel. I want to give him your tape. This guy, whose name is Ken Smith. He listened to my tape and he said, he said, I got 50 doo-wop shows on my desk right now. 49 of them are putting me to sleep. Yours is the only one that has any energy to it. Would you consider doing it? And I said, I consider doing it. Yeah, (laughs) consider doing it. And uh, I got in there right at the beginning of XM radio. And then when they merged with Sirius, you know, all of a sudden the thing expanded dramatically. So when you got in on the ground floor, what year was that? Straight around 2001, you know, approximately. Okay. So Uh, you've been on, satellite radio now for over 20 years yes wow um i'm thinking like your audience is there anyone under 60 (laughs) do you have any young people listening to to doo-wop music i don't have any scientific first of all i'm very fortunate that i've been on there this long because the people there have treated me great I have no scientific evidence of who my audience is because I never get any ratings. I don't know what they are, but I do get these tremendous amount of emails and requests. And I have like two different segments of audience. I have the people you're talking about that that write me about how they want to hear this song because it was a song they danced with, with their wife at a record hop back in 1961. That's a whole bunch of people. Or I want to play this for my wife who died, but she really loved this particular song. Those kind of emails. Then I get a whole other bunch of emails from people that are like in college. And they're like, hey, we just, we hate the music that's out there right now. We love your music, you know, and, and 
you know, we want to dedicate this to our classmates at the university or whatever. And a lot of universities have these acapella groups and acapella contests, and they get into a lot of doo-wop. So I got two completely separate audiences. Now, when I go out and I do my appearances, when I MC the oldies concerts, it's the same exact thing. There's people in there that you didn't think could walk. As soon as the band starts playing, I'm not kidding. I know, I know. <laughs> as soon as the band starts playing, they stand up and they're dancing and they're up for, for three hours, three and a half hours. They're in their 60s and 70s and 80s, probably. Then there's this whole other group of these college kids who just sit there with their mouths open. Like, wow, what is this? It actually has a melody. I can understand the words. <laughs> the, 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 you know, so it's a two separate, it's very separate audiences. Well, it's interesting because it is a, a a very how do I how do I describe it? Um it's a very unique and in some ways sophisticated style of music, all of that harmony and you know, you realize that you're the keeper of the flame that pretty much you and your show is what's keeping that art form alive. I, I really feel that, that I'm lucky to be able to do that. I think you're exactly right. People record. I'm not a record collector. Okay. I don't have like 25 million records with the original labels or any of that kind of stuff, but people out there do. And they, those people tell me that, you know, what you're telling me, like you keep at it, please keep at it, please keep doing it because you know, we love this music and we can't get it. We can't hear it. Where do you get the music? I mean, Every, besides the 50 records that you right, have right. that, that you've probably played to death, because I hear your show and people want these obscure songs. I mean, I'm hearing songs and groups I've never heard of. <laughs> it's like, where do you find this stuff? I have two people that help me, okay, that, that are like on the team. Ken Mullen, he handles all the requests and stuff like that. And then Wally J goes out and finds the music wherever he has to find it. If it's on the internet, he cleans it up. If it's in his collection, he knows a lot of doo-wop collectors. He finds the records, but he cleans them up so that they can be, they can sound fairly decent on, you know, on the radio. Cause some of them are old, you know, but uh, I could personally, I would not know where to find a lot of these records. I mean, I could go to YouTube and there's a bunch of them on there. There's probably about, Believe it or not, about 70,000 doo-wop records. Wow. Something like that. Because wow. a, lot of rec- a, a, a lot of records just didn't sell. I mean, they they went on one station or they were big in Chicago or a, a town like Pittsburgh. There's a big, huge bunch of records that were only big in Pittsburgh. Okay? And uh-huh. those, people, those people moved to Texas or they moved to California. They still want to hear the record. You know, when I was growing up in Pittsburgh, I want to hear this, you know, and that, they're still out there. <laughs> and you put together concerts as you mentioned how do you find these groups and how many in these groups a are still the original members and b can still sing uh well okay here's the deal when i f- first got into this concert thing 
uh, when we when I had in the event business, I had more contacts. So I, I put together a show in at the Meadowlands Convention Center in New Jersey. That was a very big show. I called it the world's greatest doo-wop festival. There was 23 original acts. That was 1994. There's still those. There's still acts were still together then. I sure. did a couple. I I did a couple of shows in Vegas, 2005, 2006. Most of the groups were still together then. But after I did three shows, I realized that every time I was do putting these shows together, I was getting ready to have a major heart attack or stroke or something. There was always so many things that were going on. So, <laughs> a, so a very wonderful couple, uh, Rob and Laura Albanese, have this company, Laura Enterprises, and they have been doing this for a living. That's what they do. They put these oldie shows together. So they found out about me and they hired me just, I don't have to do the show. I just go and appear and, and MC at the show and read their commercials and shake hands with the people, which is the part I like the, the very, very most. I don't have to worry about the snowstorm or the traffic accident or something that's going to mess up the show. I just go go to it. But in the original groups, the way Rob and Laura do it, they like to have at least one original member because a lot of the people that we started doing this with years ago have passed away. They're just sure. not here. Sure. But in, we're, we're talking 70 years ago. Right. As yeah. these people were... We're, we're keeping on the road and they kept adding newer people to the group and so forth and so on. So there were kind of quasi originals, I guess you would call it, or there maybe there was 26 versions of the drifters. You know, I don't, I don't really mm-hmm. know, but, but uh, Rob's pretty, pretty pure about tries to keep at least one member that was an original member if they're still available and if they can still have, you know, have consent because it's, you can't get out there and not sing. It doesn't really work that way. Yeah. You have to put true. on a show. I guess you get and a chance to talk to some of them too. And always. like a lot of these guys, okay, they had their one or two records, probably made no money. The the record company screwed them over. And right. now, you know, for the next 50 years, they're auto mechanics, they're accountants, they're school teachers. They have all these other jobs. And, uh, oh, yeah, in the background, um, I used to be in the Marcells or something. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, a lot of them, of course, they're they're of an age right now where they've been retired from that other job. So, I mean, they've retired from there 10 years ago, 20 years ago. But a lot of them did keep up the singing on weekends or, or in the neighborhood or so um, they're still professional. They still have uniforms and they still can dance and sing. And they can't walk when they go off the stage, but they can dance and sing when they, when they get on. And that's the, that's the real important part. But these guys, to be honest, I don't know how much money they make. I don't know how much Rob and Laura pay them or what everything. I know what I paid the groups when I had my shows. It's not, it's not like a huge, huge amount of money, but it's the fun of it. They can, if they have a new CD or they can sell their pictures or their autographs or whatever that, they still have huge followings. I mean, it's, it's very, very nostalgic and it's very, very, um, almost romantic the way people feel about these, these songs. And they, they, I love meeting these people. The audience loves meeting these people. I've met so many people that I've always wanted to meet and now I meet them and, the the bad part about it is eventually they they pass away unfortunately i guess we yeah all like i say it's a long time ago and right. it fades into the mist but uh you're still there playing that that music it must I, be cathartic for you um being this character this you know cool bobby b character cuz i know for me uh you know when i was a writer on mash on Saturday nights, I was Beaver Cleaver 
on right. 10Q. And I had this persona. I was this wise ass, crazy guy. I listen back to some of my old tapes now and, and I go, Jesus Christ, what was <laughs> I thinking? <laughs> oh my God, that's terrible. But, you know, at the time it was really fun to just become this other character. I imagine it's that way for you as well. You know, I have, I have almost not quite a uniform, but when I go out on stage, I only wear my dark glasses. Now, just between you and me, Ken, they have readers in the bottom of them so I can read the commercials because <laughs> other than that, I'd be out on stage thumpering around. I don't know what would happen. But I, but I wear the sunglasses. I bought a lot of really sharp, not expensive, but sharp looking stage clothes, you know, fancy jackets and stuff like that. So, yeah, I get to dress up and go out with my sunglasses and talk in front of all these people. And they react. They react. They're all primed for it and they're ready to go. And, but I do love it because for three hours, it's like another world. I mean, it truly is an escape. And one thing that I do that I really enjoy the most is after the show's over, I always go out in the lobby and talk to everybody for as long as they want to be out there, take pictures, talk to them about the music, that kind of stuff. And that takes me away from all my worries and all my stress and everything else that comes with everyday life. Well, that's a great story. And, you know, the other aspect, I think something that I live by, and I think you do too, you would agree, that you make your own momentum. You know, you, um, by, you're willing to work midnight to three for low money on some Cincinnati radio station, you know, at the time, you know, you're an executive the rest of the week and, right. and all, but you're, you're willing to do that. And from that, it becomes uh, syndicated. It's on satellite. You're doing concerts. It's like you just never know, but, you gotta you gotta get in there and and do something and you do create your own momentum yeah i never i never i never quit never say die i just kept pushing 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 and i still do it i still do it now i i i use my facebook page to to publicize everything that i'm involved in all the time just to make sure that people know where the concerts are and the because on xm on sirius xm there's no commercials on the music channels right. I can't, i'm not even allowed to mention a concert it's a non-commercial format a non-commercial environment but facebook twitter instagram whatever i can get out and keep just keep pushing keep telling people what's going on and they feed back to it i learned so much just from the comments and the emails that i get back what's going on out there it's amazing so in a way, when you're hosting these concerts, in a way, it's sort of fulfilling your original dream, kind of hosting a, a dance party. Exactly. I mean, when I look back and I love this guy, Ed Hurst, and I was a dancer on his TV show for a couple of years and I just admired him. And that's what I really wanted to do. Unfortunately, I guess I didn't have the face for it, but now I can do it. I can get out there and bring those acts on stage and talk about them and talk to the audience and all those kind of things. And yeah, it's exactly an, it's exactly a personification education of what I really wanted to do. Just not in front of the cameras. Yeah. It's inspiring. Uh, Bobby, thank you so much. I must tell the audience in all fairness, uh, 
Bobby called me 97 times asking to be on the podcast. And eventually it's like, okay, fine. <laughs> okay, fine. Um, but um, yeah, lose my number. And <laughs> thank you, man. I really appreciate it. A, r- a real honor. It's really been so much fun. Thank you so much. Okay, there you go. Cool Bobby B. And that'll do it for this week on Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me for any reason, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com is my email address, HollywoodLevine at Outlook.com. I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Next week, great guest, sitcom director Pam Fryman. You are not going to want to miss next week's episode. Thanks for listening to this one. Have a good week. Hollywood and the Fine. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.